Uh, let me pray for us before we look further at God's Word together. Heavenly Father, as we have sung, uh, we also pray. Please speak, O Lord, through your Word. Uh, may we hear your voice this morning loud and clear, and may it be a real encouragement to all of us on our journey of faith to the new creation. Amen. What is Christian faith? When my father died unexpectedly in uh, 2000, uh, the family was stricken with grief, as we would naturally be. Uh, It was interesting that uh, after the funeral, uh, one lady came to the home, who was not a Christian lady, and she made a comment to my mum, saying, I wish I had your faith. Uh, She'd clearly seen that in the midst of the grief, there was also a hope of ultimately uh, seeing my father again, a hope of life after death. And she said, I wish I had your faith. Her question is a good question. What is Christian faith? Uh, She's seen something that's attractive, uh, and she wishes she had it. Our passage today is continuing this big theme of faith, following, of course, the history of Abram. And today we see, in particular, faith in two senses, a faltering of faith and a renewal of faith. And we're going to look at each of those in turn before we then consider how they apply to us today. So firstly, we see a faltering of faith. Uh, Abram is known as the great man of faith. However, as we saw last week, in Abram, we don't just see the model of faith, but also the struggle of faith. Uh, There were times when his walk did not match up with his talk. And the disastrous excursion to Egypt was a case in point. When a famine strikes Canaan, what does Abram do? He's out of there. He tracks down to Egypt. Uh, That in itself is a questionable decision. The Lord had called him to live in Canaan. Uh, Was that in itself a failure to trust in God? Uh, Whether it was or not, the decisions that follow clearly bear the hallmarks of doubt and distrust. Now, As the 1978 hit single by Dr. Hook reminds us, uh, when you're in love with a beautiful woman, you know it's hard. It's my experience as well. Abram was in love with a very beautiful woman, uh, his wife Sarai, and he knew it was hard. Uh, He was fearful at the lengths the Egyptians would go to in order to have her for their own. Uh, He was worried that he would end up with concrete boots at the bottom of the Nile. So what does he do? Rather than trusting God, he lies. Rather than trusting God, he deceives. He resorts to his own plans and schemes. And it's only with the divine intervention of God that prevention of the matriarch of the Abrahamic line being subsumed into Pharaoh's harem. So on the orders of Pharaoh, uh, when it is discovered, Abram and Sarai and his entourage are dispatched rapidly out of Egypt. And the text is notably sort of subdued. Uh, He seems to leave in silence, chastened. How could he have been so foolish? Uh, He had passed the big test of leaving his homeland in Ur uh, in response to God's call, and yet he had failed this smaller test of trusting God in the famine. So what does he do? What does he do? He tracks back 
to the promised land. He retraces his steps back to the point where he departed from God's path. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 3. Uh, From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram Abram called on the name of the Lord. He called on the name of the Lord. It's an act of worship. It's an act of rededication. He proclaims the Lord is the Lord, even in this dark pagan land. You see, it's an act of repentance and renewal. Uh, Here, waywardness now gives way to worship. He renews his lapsed obedience. He rededicates himself to the journey of faith. It's a fresh start for Abram. Now, no sooner has the test of famine passed, but the test of prosperity follows. How would Abram fare in this test? Uh, We're told that Abram and Lot were doing very well for themselves in their wealth creation. But this, in turn, creates its own problem, although admittedly it's a nice problem to have. Uh, You see, when nomadic herdsmen get wealthy, it's not their bank accounts that grow, because they don't have any. It's their livestock and their goods, their stuff. And they have to carry that all around with them, and that's no small task. And so, as the size of Abram's and Lot's herds grew to such an extent, there comes a tension between them. The land can't support them both together. The law of economics started to take its toll on their relationship. When the resources were insufficient to supply the demand, it leads to quarreling. And there was nothing for it. They would have to go their own separate ways. They would have to part. But here's the dilemma facing Abram. Which would he prioritize, either his relationship with Lot or his own prosperity and its ongoing growth and management? Relationship or prosperity? Now, the region where they were, uh, of Bethel and Ai, this was actually a very arid part of Canaan. And yet, if you look to the east, uh, the land uh, over a period of uh, a length of uh, distance of 30 kilometers uh, drops down over a kilometre, a thousand metres, down to the plains. And these are the well-watered plains of Jordan. Uh, And the Jordan, of course, flows there from there into what we now call the Dead Sea. And even uh, from 30 kilometres away, you can see it is green, it is luscious, it is inviting, it is well-watered. That's the place to go if you're a nomadic herdsman. That's the place to go if you want your wealth to continue to prosper and to increase. That's clearly the favoured option. So, here's the question. How does Abram resolve the matter? Uh, Because he does have two options, and here they are. Uh, Firstly, he can call the shots. He can call the shots. Uh, He is the older relative. And in that culture, the older person, the senior person, had the authority. They had the clout. So, whatever he says goes. He could well say to Lot... I'm going to the Jordan, you push off, you go elsewhere, make the best of a bad job. But what he would be doing, of course, is he'd be choosing his prosperity over the relationship with Lot. The second option is this. 
He could defy his culture. He could defy his cultural protocol to use his authority for his own gain. He could give Lot the choice. And in so doing, he would prioritize the relationship, but he would indeed jeopardize the growth of his prosperity. So what does he do? Chapter 13, verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. See what he's doing? He's very brave. He's saying to Lot, you choose. You have the first choice. And that takes incredible courage. And indeed, it takes real faith. It's never easy letting somebody else choose because you lose control. And it's not easy for Abram to do because he's also defying his culture. He is the one who should really pull rank on Lot, but he doesn't. He's denying himself. He says, you choose. And in so doing... He's consigning himself to the less favorable land. And this could cost him greatly. That's a big call. And the question then is this. What gave him the freedom to make that very difficult call? That very difficult choice. What gave him the strength to do that? And the answer is, as you probably guessed it by now, faith. Faith in God's promises. What had God promised Abram? He promised them, this whole land will be yours and uh, the land of your descendants. And so he knows God has promised him this land, all of it. And therefore, he can let Lot have his choice and he can rest in God's control of his future. God would fulfill his promise of blessing of the land in his time. Do you see what's happening? Uh, Faith is causing Abram to look beyond his immediate situation to his future prospects, actually to his eternal prospects. And the engine which is enabling him to do that is responding to the promise of God. He's putting his faith in God's promise. And of course, when we get to the New Testament in the letter of Hebrews, uh, this assessment of Abram is confirmed to us. Hebrews 11 verse 9. By faith, he, that is Abram, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. There it is. He lived in the land, but he didn't yet have everything that God had promised him. He knew it was in the future. It was a city, a glorious city, with amazing foundations, whose architect was God. So, what is Christian faith? That lady who spoke with my mum seemed to think that it was a sort of mystical or magical process. I wish I had your faith, as if it is beyond me. It is out of my reach. But we know, of course, what Christian faith is. And we know how we generate it. Christian faith is a response to God's promises. And we generate it by looking at God's promises and choosing to put our trust in 
them. And as the kids talk reminded us, Hebrews puts it this way, chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for, and Abram is one of those ancients. So when we put our faith in Christ, the reality is, yes, we do experience some of the benefits of faith in Christ now. But the Scripture points to the majority of the benefits being not now, but in the life to come, when Jesus returns and when the new creation is inaugurated. Uh, Scripture, of course, talks about our inheritance, but we don't yet have it. The inheritance is still to come. So for now, we live by faith. We don't yet have what is promised, although one day we will. So it's interesting looking at Abram, because it was that faith that gave him the vision in his relationship tensions with Lot. It was this faith which gave him the perspective which enabled him to make that brave decision. It was this faith which enabled him to go against his cultural protocol and make a totally countercultural choice. You see, back in Egypt, uh, his eye of faith had grown dim and he had resorted to self-reliance. But now his eye of faith sees clearly and he surrenders the control of a situation to God. Uh, Lot lifted his eyes and saw the well-watered plains of the Jordan. Abram lifts his eyes and sees the heavenly city through the lens of God's promises. And that perspective of faith guides Abram's decisions in the present. So, how does this apply to us today? Well, the reality is, of course, we know God makes promises to all who put their faith in Christ. And they are precious promises, promises for us which change our lives totally. Firstly, there are the promises of the destination. And secondly, there are promises which go with us on our journey to the destination. The promises of the destination. He promises us if we come to Christ in faith... We are forgiven all sin, big and small. He promises that we need not fear the final judgment day because he promises that the verdict is already now known, not guilty. At Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another promise of the destination is this. He promises that in the new creation we will experience life in all its fullness. We will experience life then to a degree of satisfaction and delight that we will never, ever, ever experience in this sin-stained world. Uh, You may recall that ancient Afro-American hymn, uh, This World is Not My Home. Actually, technically, that's not true. Uh, It needs a qualification. Because God doesn't say, this world is not our home. God says that this sin-fractured, broken world is not our home. But with the return of Jesus, this world will again become our home. But it will be renewed and it will be cleansed and it will be perfected. On the return of Jesus, he will give this world back to us, to all who have faith in him. 
Look at uh, his promise in the Sermon on the Mount to his followers. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Revelation 21, verse 5 is that picture of the day when Jesus returns and that voice from the throne saying, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. These words are absolutely trustworthy and absolutely true. On that day, he will renew and cleanse this creation. So you can see the problem for the original hymn writer. It's a bit of a mouthful to sing uh, This sin-stained world is not our home. It doesn't quite fit and roll, but you can see the point. It's not actually technically true if we leave it at that. But God doesn't just make promises for the destination. He makes promises also for us on the journey. God promises us he will never leave us on the journey. Hebrews 13 verse 5. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And there can be times in the journey, of course, when we feel alone. And the darkness does tend to close in. And we need to remember in those times, God says, I promise, I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you alone. God also promises on the journey that he's going to provide all we need. Philippians 4 verse 19 says this. God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That is a precious promise. And often, of course, we feel the tension of not knowing the future. We feel the tension of maybe not knowing if we've got enough to get by. We worry that there will be some month left at the end of the money. And yet God says... I will provide all you need. God promises that on the journey, when we face persecution for our faith, that is nothing compared to the joy that will one day be ours. Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. We could look at others, but we'll look at one more. God promises that he will use every situation, pleasant or painful, for our eternal good. Those familiar words from Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And God promises us freedom now. God promises us delight now through trusting in his promises. And there's one other encouragement from Abram. When we falter in our faith, what do we do? We go back to God's promises. Because there will be times when we do falter in our faith. There will be times when our eye of faith grows dim. And what do we do? Like Abram, we go back we retrace our traces. We go back to Bethel. We repent. We worship afresh. And we renew ourselves to the path of faith, trusting afresh in the promises of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious promises to us. Uh, we don't deserve them, but you have made them 
and we know that they are trustworthy and true. Thank you for the promise of the destination. Thank you also for your promises which go with us on the journey to the destination. We pray that we would each continue on that journey and would indeed have our vision renewed through looking afresh to your promises and having that deeper sense of freedom and liberation and courage that comes through trusting afresh in your promises. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.